One of my favorite movies as a kid was Far and Away, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. It's the story of two Irish immigrants, Joseph, played by Tom Cruise, and Shannon, played by Nicole Kidman. Joseph is a tenant farmer on land that Shannon's family owns. Now, after some drama, Shannon decides to run away. You said you wanted land. If that's what you want, then come with me. Joseph goes with her, and they arrive in America, each with dreams of claiming a homestead in Oklahoma. Now look, this is not a good movie. (laughs) In fact, here's what Roger Ebert had to say about it. Quote, Far and Away is a movie that joins astonishing visual splendor with a story so simple-minded it seems intended for adolescents. Now, since I was an adolescent when this was one of my favorite movies, I'm going to give myself a pass. But that simple-minded story is exactly why it's been on my mind. Joseph is the embodiment of the American mythos. He believes he's destined for greatness, that America is where he can finally be free, and the ticket to his self-actualization is owning a plot of land out west. Now, at the same time, Tom Cruise himself embodies another aspect of this same story. He is the quintessential American celebrity, handsome, full of swagger, ridiculously wealthy, and even does his own stunts. And all that after a rough childhood. In Joseph, we find the stick-to-it, do-whatever-it-takes drive that is supposed to ensure our success in American meritocracy while Cruz presents a glimpse of the future that awaits us. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Far and Away takes place in the early 1890s, a heady time in American history. The abundant resources of the American expanse provided robber barons with everything they needed to accumulate their fortunes. People like Carnegie, Morgan, and Rockefeller dominated the economic landscape. At the same time, immigrants poured in to work in their factories and on their railroads. Those immigrants provided the labor necessary to catapult American capitalism into a new age. John Steinbeck would later write that everyone was a temporarily embarrassed capitalist. Steinbeck was writing about the Great Depression, but Joseph certainly fits this bill too. He fancies himself a rich man in weight. When he's successful in the boxing ring, he starts to buy himself fine suits and hats, claiming that he didn't need to worry about saving money because he'd just make more during the next fight. Look at you. They're making a fool of you, the ward boss and his friends. They respect me. Oh, they do not. They don't respect you. Enough. Your money in their pockets and nothing more, Joseph. I said that. That's enough, Shannon. Joseph doesn't see that he's literally breaking his body on behalf of wealthy men just to dress the part. Kiss it goodbye, Mr. Burke. Try to make it 200 and I'll split the winners with you. $200, Joseph. What? Did you not hear me? I said I'll split the winners with you. 
No! Joseph! Donnelly! Take it. Take it. I thought you didn't want me to fight. But so much money. You boxed the nickels before. This is a fortune. Now, at the risk of spoiling a 30-year-old movie, Joseph eventually loses, having made a grave mistake in his final match while coming to Shannon's aid. He not only loses that night's prize, but everything he's earned and managed not to spend. He and Shannon are kicked out of the boarding house they've been living in. He was so close to his American dream only to suffer the embarrassment of destitution. Now don't worry, it's a Ron Howard film. Joseph does eventually secure his plot of land in Oklahoma during the land rush. This land is mine! Mine by destiny! And manages to win Shannon's love while narrowly avoiding death at the hands of her more class-appropriate fiancé. There's a reason the adolescent me would avail herself of this movie every time it was on cable. Far and Away has been on my mind because I've been thinking about loss aversion and its role in the American psyche. Loss aversion is a concept from behavioral economics and psychology, and by extension, marketing, that explains how we are much more likely to overvalue something that we already possess, and therefore have a strong tendency to act in a way that avoids loss. Researchers in 2002 studied this effect by way of pizza. They had one group build a pizza order from scratch, choosing a crust, sauce, cheese, and toppings to complete their order. Then they had another group start with a completed pizza order and ask them to remove the ingredients they didn't want. The results showed that giving the customer a suggestion of a pizza order, say meat lovers, and then asking them to scale it down led to a more expensive order. Think about that the next time you order DoorDash. Still in Ireland, Joseph already saw himself as a landowning, successful man in America. Even through the difficulties he experienced reaching Oklahoma, He never lost that image of himself. He couldn't scale down his dream because he was already in possession of his homestead in his mind. As far as he was concerned, America had already given him his meat lover's pizza. Such is the American myth. We learn to take possession of a vision of the future in which we're stable, comfortable, and successful. We start telling stories about what we want to be when we grow up as early as three or four years old. If we grow up on the higher rungs of the American ladder, we might see ourselves as doctors, lawyers, engineers, designers, or business owners. Even if we imagine a life as an actor or artist, we imagine the celebrity version of those vocations. Our pizza might not be a wood-fired oven Neapolitan with the finest mozzarella, vine-ripened tomato sauce, and hand-picked basil served alongside an expensive bottle of Lambrusco, but there is no way we're giving up whatever pizza future we believe we've been given. In my book, I write that our goals represent a chance at a better life, a less challenging identity, even the hope of a sort of salvation. To give up goal setting 
can feel like abandoning an imagined future self that has things a little easier. This is the loss aversion that keeps us striving, that keeps us from making decisions that defy the status quo. The American myth, the root of which hasn't changed since the country's founding, allows us to take possession of the dream of a successful life and then dares us to give it up. It's a psycho-political gotcha. But I find quite a bit of hope here. If once I was acting to avoid the loss of a successful career, a profitable business, a dream home, I can instead act to build up exactly what I want and nothing more. To me, this is a more pro-social position from which to act. If I'm avoiding loss, then my instinct is to see everyone around me as a potential threat. But if I'm creating and maintaining instead, I learn to see others as doing the same for themselves. We're teammates rather than competitors. If I'm a temporarily embarrassed millionaire, as Steinbeck is often misquoted, then I'm constrained to whatever choices promise my return to grace. But if I can finally shed that identity, I achieve the freedom of self-realization with others, as Byung-Chul Han puts it. Freedom is synonymous with a working community that is a successful one, he writes. The promise of that successful working community is that a level of reliable comfort and stability is possible. It's not a promise to rectify my temporarily embarrassed condition, but to prove that I was never really embarrassed at all. Many of us live assuming that our personal trajectories are ever up and to the right. We expect our bank balances, our businesses, our standards of living, and our influence to grow. The objective of growth is such a totalizing force that few of us stop to consider the costs of growth. I mean, the literal costs of growth. Sure, there are plenty of mental, physical, and social costs that often come along with growth. I might hustle myself into the ground and end up sick, depressed, and alone. But growth can be downright expensive, too. So we moved to Texas, and that's when I think the kind of creeping in of my kind of ambitions or my spending kind of happened. That's Natalie Lucier, the founder of Access Ally and a longtime online business owner. Where we were like, oh, okay, well, we can have like a really big house with a pool. And, you know, we kind of went all out into the suburbs and everything. And it took me a few years to realize what that actually meant to our bottom line or how much we had to work, but also to ongoing expenses. A couple of months ago, Natalie wrote a LinkedIn post that caught my attention. She described how she found herself on a treadmill. She noticed that the more she spent, the more she had to work. This is one of the traps of independent work that I don't think we talk enough about. When you're paid a salary or for a certain number of hours per week, you have a pretty baseline idea of what's in the budget and what's not. But when you control your earning by the number of clients you take on or the programs you sell or the talks that you give, it is very easy to 
always believe that an expense is in the budget because the budget can always get bigger. Your consumption ends up setting the bar for your production. But unintuitively, perhaps, the inverse is also true. The more you work, the more you spend. And the reason is really quite simple. Regardless of how much you're earning, when you work more, you have less capacity for everything else. Less time to cook, so more money is spent on takeout. Less energy for a hobby, so you de-stress with some retail therapy. Less quality time with your family, so you treat them to more extravagant vacations. I have to say this was the worst for me when I lived in New York City, or we're technically in Brooklyn, but I feel like New Yorkers do this especially a lot <laughs> because, uh, first of all, people don't have kitchens or they have really small kitchens, so like takeout is kind of the default way to eat. And mm -hmm. um, there's just no downtime in New York because there's always activities and events and networking and you have to be on all the time. And it was definitely burning me out when we were there because you have to look presentable. You, you know, you have to show up looking a certain way with the nice shoes and the nice purses and all the things, right? We cope with overworking by overspending. So I feel like that was probably at the height of it. Um, when we moved to Texas, I feel like I didn't have the showing up <laughs> as much side of it, um, but definitely we still were spending a lot on just like things, you know, Amazon one click, you know, you're just tired and bleary eyed and you're like, okay, like, yes, maybe this will make me feel better. This will solve my immediate, you know, dissatisfaction <laughs> with how I'm feeling. So our production can actually set the bar for our consumption. Loss aversion makes this an incredibly difficult cycle to break out of once it's established. Once you've set the bar for your consumption, the idea of cutting back can feel impossible. How could you go without the nightly takeout, or the fancy skincare, or the elite gym membership, or every streaming service that the internet gods have given us? And I think like a lot of the things we buy are kind of like that. Like We think this mm -hmm. will be the thing that will help me, or this will be the thing that eases this stress or this other thing. And then you kind of realize, oh, okay, it's fine, but it's not going to save me, right? Yeah, because buying stuff is like far easier than addressing the underlying issue that's causing the dissatisfaction in the first place. A hundred percent. After Natalie and her husband moved from Brooklyn to Texas, the amount of money they spent didn't change that much. But what they spent money on certainly did, and so did the things they spent their time on. Yeah, so we kind of got the gardening bug in Texas. In our first year, you know, we decided, okay, we want to plant stuff, like maybe tomatoes, because that's the, you know, the gateway vegetable. And then uh, we didn't know anything. So we basically put our vegetable plot as far away from the house as possible, which is a really bad idea because when you have to water or go check on stuff, like you're not going to do it. And it's so hot in Texas, like you're not going to go. <laughs> so we kind of quickly like, you know, learned uh, after that year, we started planting things closer to the house. We figured out drip irrigation and we started planting trees. And the first time we planted trees, all of them died. Like we planted four trees, they all died. And we were like, okay, we got to learn <laughs> what we're doing here. So uh, we, I think we overwatered those ones. I think that was what it was. So then we kind of realized, okay, so we've, we've had success. We planted a peach tree, an apple tree. We planted a couple other things. They survived. We're like, okay, this is cool. Now maybe we should get chickens because, you know, once you get down this path, you realize like all of the benefits 
benefits of all the different types of animals and um, what they can do for your compost and your soil. And where we lived, we were not allowed to have chickens. Um, but down the street, like basically across the street from where we lived, you could. And I was like, oh, like this is so unfair. You know, it's just the neighborhood that we're in. We're not allowed. Like I could hear the chickens from our neighbors sometimes and I'd be like, come on. So that kind of prompted the like, okay, if we were going to move, like where would we move to and what would that look like? And we were like, well, we could get a little bit more acreage, maybe, you know, plant more things. After some careful consideration, they decided to move back to Canada, where they're both from, and buy a farm. The cool thing about our farm is that we're sort of in a neighborhood. So on our side of the street, it's farms. On the other side, it's houses. So we're super lucky we get to have good internet <laughs> because of that. Um, so yeah, you would just kind of drive down what looks like just a regular street. And then when you turn down our driveway, you'll see our home. And then behind that, you'll see our chickens. So we have um, about 20 chickens or so. Some of them are silkies, um, which are really good brooders and um, kind of layers, if you will. And then we have a 100 foot by 25 foot greenhouse. And uh, then we have a barn and then a small barn. So the barns were there before the chicken coop my husband built and then the greenhouse we added on to. And um, we also dug a pond. So we kind of went a little overboard <laughs> with all of the projects. But um, these were all things that we think are kind of good long term um, investments for us and into the ecosystem and biodiversity and all of that good stuff. Um, so, yeah, we have some ducks and some geese. The geese would be the first to welcome you because they're very loud and they're kind of like our guard geese. Uh, the people who basically owned the farm before us, they were horse people. So they actually keep a horse uh, in the barn still. And uh, another neighbor also has horses with us. So we kind of board horses. We don't do any of the work for the horses. So they come every day and like let them out and do all the stuff. Uh, but we get to look at horses, which is nice. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like the perfect arrangement. It really is. <laughs> for sure. Uh, and then we also have right now seven sheep. So these are dairy sheep, so that means we milk them in the summer. And um, yeah, so they're about to have lambs probably in the next month or so. And they're super cute. They usually have twins and yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> what do you grow in the greenhouse? Yeah, so the greenhouse we added last year and the goal is basically to have four season vegetables as much as we can. So we had, you know, greens all winter pretty much and we have what's called a climate battery. So basically there is these pipes that go underground and then we circulate air from the heat inside the greenhouse underground and it stays there until the nighttime where it's cold and then it recirculates the hot air from the day. So it's semi-passive, if you will. And uh, so it's a way to kind of keep the temperature cooler during the day and then hotter during the night. And so, yeah, we're doing pretty well with it. It's very experimental. We don't, you know, we're not like we don't know what we're doing, but we are experimenting and making it better. But yeah, so anyways, we're, we're still learning about that part. But um, we're also growing a couple of like subtropical, not quite tropical fruits. So like figs, pomegranates and uh, like a tea plant to grow like green tea and uh, olives. So we're going to see like they all survive the winter. So I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll actually get some fruit maybe next year or the year after. <laughs> Of course, it's not like Natalie's move was to a cabin in the woods off the grid, which is what I just suggested to Sean this morning. Running a business and a farm takes resources. It takes money, 
but it also takes time, attention, commitment, and social support. It's not simply living somewhere beautiful. It's a massive investment in non-income earning work, especially for two people who didn't know the first thing about farming when they got started. Did either you or your husband come from farming families or farm experience at all? No, we were both, like, my husband Robin is from China, so he grew up in, like, a huge city. He didn't even know the difference between a cow and a horse. Like, literally, he just, (laughs) (laughs) until, like, you know, we moved to Canada and then kind of, you know, got to see them and stuff. Um, And for me, I grew up in the countryside, but we definitely didn't have any, you know, livestock or anything like that. There were some farms nearby, probably like you, where you had to drive and, you know, you could see cows, but that's about it. Um, Yeah, I don't have any, we didn't have any experience before this. How much time during an average week are you putting into farm activities? Yeah, so my husband and I work minimum one hour a day on the farm, so during the week. Um, weekends, we might spend, I don't know, an extra two hours, three hours. It depends. You know, we have two, two young kids, so it depends kind of what's going on with them and birthday parties and all that stuff. But we, yeah, we do try to keep it like, you know, the, the regular daily stuff is about an hour. Um, and then, you know, we have projects. So like building the chicken coop, like that took a couple weeks. And then, um, you know, the greenhouse right now, we're installing um, some better irrigation because I was watering <laughs> by hand all of last summer, which was intense. Um, so, so this year it'll just be all automated, hopefully. But yeah, so that's taking a little extra time. And then um, actually this spring, we're working with the government to plant 5,000 trees on our property. So um, we kind of need to get some new fencing for that. And yeah, there's always projects on the farm. <laughs> Natalie and her husband have learned much of what they know about farming from books, Facebook groups, local friends, and of course, YouTube videos. Natalie told me that as she learns, especially from YouTube, she's always identifying new projects she wants to add to the farm. Now, this caught my attention. What's the difference between the more, more, more choices she made in Brooklyn or Texas and the more, more, more project choices she makes on the farm? I would love to hear like how that difference sort of feels to you um, and how you think about it differently than you did before. Does that make sense? Yes, it's a perfect question. So my mom actually commented about this to me. Like, so we're sort of semi-minimalists, I would say indoors, like we have furniture, but we basically lived without, without a couch for three years because I didn't, we moved, we didn't really have one, we didn't really need it, and you know, whatever. But basically my mom said to me, you have more stuff outside than you have inside. And, you know, meaning in my house, right? And I was like, yes, but the outside stuff is like, I feel like it's rewarding and it's like rejuvenating and it feeds us and um, it's biodiversity and it's like, it's alive and it's like doing things um, that the inside stuff doesn't feel the same. So I feel like for me, it was that realization that yeah, like our stuff inside is great. You know, like we have beds and <laughs> desks and computers and stuff and we need that. But at the same time, the outside stuff, like that has its own life and its own um, unique journey, right? And, you know, like, yes, I put the seed in the ground or I feed the sheep some grains or some hay in the winter and things like that. But, you know, they have their own journey and their own lives. And I'm just kind of part of the equation, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's almost like, the outside stuff has its own vitality because of the care and maintenance that you put into it, which is just not something that we get 
with modern inside life. Yeah. And I would say like inside stuff, if you have so much of it, it's actually depleting to like clean it, maintain it, store it, organize it, like all of that stuff versus the outside stuff. Yes, it takes effort and work too. I'm not saying it's like, oh, easy peasy. Like we never work on the farm, but it is, you know, it's a different, it's more of a relationship, I would say, as opposed to with our stuff where it's kind of static, but like you kind of I don't know. I feel like there's no no give back, right? If that makes sense in, in some of the ways, if that makes sense. A big lifestyle change like Natalie's only works if one's relationship to work also changes in a big way. For Natalie, that wasn't only a matter of setting better boundaries or creating more predictable revenue. It was an actual change to how she did business, how the business was structured and what that meant for her customers and employees. Yeah, so I feel like in the beginning, it was all go, 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 you know, super ambitious, you know, but I was definitely in that, you know, hustle, push hard, definitely went through a couple of burnout periods of doing that and realizing, no, this is not sustainable. I can't keep doing this. I switched from more consulting and coaching into our software company. So that I think is where I sort of matured, mainly because I also had kids at the same time. So that is where I kind of had to have those like actually strict limits around work and about, you know, I can't be online all the time. I can't be answering questions and, you know, being super available to everything all the time. And I would say right now my relationship to work is much healthier. So I love that you said sort of like when the when you got the software company off the ground was sort of when you ha- when you grew up <laughs> around these things, in addition also to becoming a parent, which does all sorts of things for the way you think about the world. Um, but I was curious if there was also sort of like an organizational structure piece that shifted. And this is total conjecture, but I'm wondering if. When you were doing online courses, you were working predominantly with contractors and were just technically less responsible for those people and then moved into a software company where I assume you have more employees and are technically more responsible for those people. And if that sort of shift in the social relations of your work impacted how you thought about working in general. Absolutely. And we were moving towards more employees before we completely switched over to software. So we did have full-time people, but we still had more contractors, I would say, than full-time employees. And I do feel like having the structure of, you know, we only have employees now, that really made a big difference to how I showed up at work and also what the business is supposed to be for, right? To support all of us, but also, you know, we work for it as opposed to sort of me being the central part of the business, because definitely with software, you know, my husband is is our lead developer. We also have other developers. And so that kind of shifted the focus off of me specifically. And I think that also helped with being like, oh, someone else can answer questions or someone else is responsible for doing some of the delivery work, uh, if, if that makes sense. Completely makes sense. It was absolutely my experience as well, making that shift. You had said it uh, working for the company as opposed to sort of it being about you 
Can you say more about that and sort of the difference that you were experiencing? Yeah, so definitely, you know, in the online coaching space and courses space and all of that, even consulting, you're basically the business, right? You are the person in the middle, the person who's delivering, the person who's marketing, people know you. And that's fine. It works great and it can build a great brand, but it's also not the best sustainable kind of scalable business slash business you can take a vacation from because you are you, right? So I think when we switched to Access Ally, which is its own brand, I'm still obviously a big part of it and still market it and all of that, but it had this completely distinct entity, right? And that makes it so much clearer for people who are contacting our support. They're not expecting me <laughs> to answer support. They're not expecting me to write the code and do all the things. And so I think that really makes a big difference. And yeah, I think just having a separation between you and your business also just from like a mental standpoint is extremely healthy because, you know, what if your business doesn't do as well? Does that mean you're not as good of a person, right? Like there's all these weird associations that we have as we kind of self-identify too closely with our companies. And yeah, it's literally just this thing where we get to do great work for people and it, we get paid for it and it doesn't have to be like the end all be all of our entire identity. <laughs> point, you might be wondering whether two entrepreneurial hobby farmers would figure out how to turn their passion for farming into a business. I really don't want to make the farm into a business. People are constantly like, oh, you should make this into a petting zoo. People would totally pay like five or 10 bucks to come pet the sheep and, you know, see the animals or whatever. Um, and just like they have all these ideas for monetizing the farm, right? So we do sell eggs at the road. So that's mainly just because we have too many eggs and we can't eat right. them all. So we do give them away too. So it's not like a purely money-making thing. But in the summer when we're getting like, you know, five cartons or 10 cartons per week, it's like we just can't, can't do that. The urge to monetize every aspect of our lives is part of what Byung-Chul Han calls the psychopolitics of neoliberal capitalism. We internalize the logic of the market and then make life choices based on exchange value. I think stepping away from this mindset brings with it a sort of loss aversion effect too. It's not just the aversion to a loss of potential income or opportunity. It's an aversion to the loss of a structure that orders how we live. The logic of the market and the neoliberal system feels like a stabilizing force, or at least something fairly predictable. But only because it's the only system we know. Instead, the market and the neoliberal order are profoundly destabilizing and unpredictable. They help create the ambient anxiety that lurks throughout the 21st century economy. When we disconnect from those systems in the ways that we can, we have the chance to embrace self-realization with others, to create a working community that provides real freedom. I kind of got to this, like, what does enough look like? Because, you know, like, you, you see all these numbers all the time of, like, how much money people are making with, you know, their business or their launch or, you know, how much they have stashed away in their retirement accounts and all this stuff. And I kind of realized, like, what do I really need? What do I need? is essentially a question of building the pizza from scratch. It removes or at least remediates the influence of advertising, status symbols, and peer pressure. You can put as much or as little on your pizza as you'd like. 
obviously like living on a farm, we don't need as much. Like we don't go to the grocery store that much. Um, obviously we have, that's been replaced with like grain bills and hay bills and stuff. So it's not like a complete, like we don't spend on anything. But um, what I realized, like what I need is, you know, enough money to do the basics, right? So like make sure that we have a roof over our head and like kids need, you know, whatever they need, they have food and then community. Like those are kind of the big things. And our business, like we pay ourselves, you know, $80,000 salary each. And like we we maybe take some uh, distributions every now and then when we have a good year. But like that in itself is enough to sustain us. And so we know that like we have it, like we have the enough, right? And I feel like that takes so much pressure off of us to be like, okay, like let's double the business or like 50% increase um, because that kind of income claim marketing especially is so like rat race, like hamster wheel, like you're just kind of constantly pushing for no reason, right? Like if you're already got all your bases covered, like why do you have to keep pushing? And um, I even think about it, you know, from a team perspective, like, oh, hire more people and do more things. And it's like, no, I think our team is the right size. We cover everything we need to do. We're still adding features and making things better for our customers. And um, we don't need to like kill ourselves in the process, right? Trying to like reach this arbitrary number. Um, and I also think, if, especially for software companies, there's a big emphasis on exiting and selling your business. And I realized like, I don't need to do that, right? I enjoy running this business. We don't need to exit for like multiple seven figures or, you know, whatever like amazing deal we could potentially get. And um, yeah, like I enjoy running it. I enjoy our customers. I enjoy the work that we do. I'm not going to overdo it. And that's more sustainable. And that's kind of that enough point, if that makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. Growth isn't the only goal. We don't have to let the threat of losing something we never really had dictate how much we earn or how much we spend. We don't have to behave as temporarily embarrassed capitalists. It's not a compromise. It's not a loss. It's an incredible opportunity to embrace what actually satisfies us. Huge thanks to Natalie Lussier for sharing her story. You can find out more about Access Ally at accessally.com. And if you're on LinkedIn, I also recommend following Natalie there, where she gives more insights, stories from the farm, and thoughts about businesses that are beautifully enough. And... I'd be remiss if I didn't plug my book after this episode. If you'd like a guide to deconstructing the narratives that keep us pushing for more, 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 and building a life based on practice and satisfaction rather than continuous achievement, check out the What Works book. You can find it at bookshop.org, Amazon, or at your local independent bookseller. Or go to explorewhatworks.com book to learn more. That's explorewhatworks.com slash book. Every episode of What Works is also published as an essay. Find the complete archive and subscribe to get new essays delivered straight to you at read.explorewhatworks.com. That's read.explorewhatworks.com. I often spend 
weeks researching and writing What Works episodes and essays so that I can bring you something different from what you hear on most podcasts about work, business, and leadership. If you appreciate the unique perspective and in-depth research I put into What Works, please support my work by becoming a paid subscriber. For just $7 a month, you get access to bonus content and make it possible for me to spend less time making things to sell and more time making things that everyone can access. To support What Works, go to read.explorewhatworks.com and upgrade your subscription. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.